This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Are you an entrepreneur or maybe a marketer who wants to grow their business through content production? Maybe you're sick of dealing with agencies or want an outsourced solution that actually fits a budget? Well, Neural Media, our business, can help you with simple and affordable content production, saving you time and money by taking away that pain of producing the content. If you want to learn more, just head to neural.com slash media, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash media. Play around with our pricing. Have a look at all the different options that you have. Request or consider requesting a callback from me personally. If you have a friend that runs a business or is a marketer, do send them our way. It will help us keep the lights on and producing more juicy content. Listeners to this show receive a special discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. If you want to learn yourself as to how to create content, maybe you want to make a podcast or your very own video, just download our free series on how to create a podcast and video at the very bottom of neural.com slash media. Welcome to another episode of Uncommon, the podcast that helps you build your knowledge, skills, and mindset through interviews with unique individuals. My name's Jordan Michaelides, and I'm your host. In this episode, I have for you Tristan Rose. Tristan is the founder of a veteran-focused yoga studio called Blind Tiger Yoga and a former soldier in the Royal Australian Regiment. For a long time, I've wanted to interview a former veteran to get a better grasp of how this community perceives itself amongst the general civilian population. And and war and violence are at times necessary. And so I, I just really wanted to get to understand how they view that necessity in the world. And for quite some time, I, w- I would just continually pitch former and current special forces operators only to have repeated no's come back to me. And after interviewing Tristan, I started to get a glimpse as to why that may be. The way we treat veterans in Australia as a general population is strange. Whether it's sticking our head in the sand about suicide post-discharge through masking statistics or making it hard for veterans to make medical claims or going along with the culture that doesn't allow us to celebrate the commitment these individuals make post-career. And I realized that during this research process and indeed part of the interview process, how important Tristan's work really is. The Blind Tiger Yoga Studio, a team focused on complementing health management for veterans and first responders, could really be the connective tissue that links a multitude of modalities in a veteran's life, giving it a wholeness and meaning in a system that has washed a lot of people away. And I think this was an eye-opening conversation that I thank Tristan for allowing me to be a part of and including things like how he even got into yoga in the first place and and meditation for veterans, uh, the life-changing yoga moment that he had, the compartmentalizing you often have as a soldier and then how we treat Australian versus US veterans and then, of course, being a veteran in Australia and how that looks like. We spoke as well about veteran mental health and suicide, and I think this is a really, really important point um, where we discuss suicide in particular, and I think if you were to pick one area, definitely go have a listen to that. And then, of course, we spoke about what Blind Tiger Yoga actually does. If you enjoy this episode, 
do subscribe on your podcast app or consider leaving us a rating. If you want the show notes for this one, as with all previous guests, just head to neural.com slash podcast. I thank you all so much for listening, our regulars and newbies. I really all hope you enjoy this conversation with Tristan Rose. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, first question, I was just thinking about like what, what some of the icebreakers I could go with and one of the things I kept seeing, whether it was on your Instagram or in interviews, was health advice from yoga teachers. And so, I was curious <laughs> as to what was the worst health advice you've ever received um, from a yoga teacher? The, the worst advice that I ever received from a yoga teacher, um, I hear almost daily daily um, golden nuggets from people. Um, but it was actually a practice in the States when I arrived early. And due to the amount of injuries that I have, I make the time to actually address it to the teacher and say, look, you know, I have various injuries in certain areas. Please don't come up and modify me in the position. I know what works for me mm-hmm. um, through my own experience. And I would prefer not for you to physically assist me. Mm-hmm. And straight away, I knew the guy just paid me off and sort of, no worries. And I was in the practice and I saw him making a beeline straight over to me and I said, stop, 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 um, before he even touched me. And he basically reefed my shoulder and it ripped out of the socket. Oh, my God. And uh, I got up and very calmly um i wouldn't be able to tell you how many times i've banged my shoulder out and put it back in myself and just walked up to the door frame smashed it back in and then um i said this is why i told you not to touch me and he said your mind wasn't in the right place oh my god um so that was a very good lesson in what not to do (laughs) um and i just thought that was a a pretty amazing way to deflect the accountability of, hey, I didn't listen to that guy. Um, I find that a lot of yoga teachers will pretend that they know your body better than you. No one knows your body better than you. Mm. Um, With extensive research and training in anatomy and physiology, you know, I never go up and physically adjust anyone in any pose without verbally asking what they're feeling what they're feeling and where because if i was to move someone if i was to adjust someone in any position i don't know their injury history their background um yeah they could have had multiple surgeries um to move someone without actually asking for that feedback prior would be to deserve them yeah i'm not a walking mri machine And I think a lot of yoga teachers are actually moving beyond the scope of their knowledge. Mm -hmm. A basic yoga teacher with their minimum hours of training covers four hours of anatomy. (laughs) And you're expected to to go up and tell someone what's happening with their body. That's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. It's it's sort of one of those weird, it's like bro science, but not. Bro science, but for oh, yeah. a bit more woo-woo, you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, and don't <laughs> even get me started on the woo-woo that exists <laughs> in, um, in yoga. Um, we've really bastardized yoga in the West. Mm. 
And as a result, you know, the percentage of males versus females uh, that practice is because of that. It's just over the top woo woo. Uh-huh. that's making even sometimes I'm just like oh dude like just put a stop on that um, <laughs> if you want me to never come back just keep going just keep doing just that just keep going well it makes sense I mean like when it came out to the west it was sort of like they had to market it and I mean I, I feel like every time people talk about it like if I listen to like a Joe Rogan podcast and they talk, he's got some yoga person in there and uh, who did they sell it to first? It was sort of like Californian mums. Pretty much. Yeah. And um, look, it's had the yoga and meditation has had the worst PR probably in the last 150 years. And it's gone through various stages. But, you know, you Google an image of meditation and it's a cross-legged person with a straight spine and... You know, maybe there's pictures of chakras and, you know, it's it's an unrealistic picture of what it actually is. And if you were to Google an image or even go on any platform of social media and look at what yoga is, you know, there's the old typical Karen, 43, um, <laughs> white woman, like middle class sort of thing. <laughs> And um, she's just done a crystal chakra cleansing course, and you're just like, man, I'm, I'm never going to do that. That 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 element was like that was one of the big questions I had with the way that you introduce veterans and first, like that must be the hardest, the hardest like lead magnet. If you thought like think about it from a marketing perspective, like how do you get what is a stoic community? typically from the outside, if you were to look at it from the outside, uh, hey, you've got to do this thing called yoga and meditation. It's really, really going to help you. And then they they think about Karen, who's 43, who drinks chai lattes. Oh, look, you know, and I've walked out of plenty of classes because in early stages because it was just too over the top. Yeah. And um, I'm not too sure if I'm allowed to swear. You can swear um, all you want. <laughs> oh, green light. That's fantastic. Um, cutting out all the bullshit. Yeah. Cutting out all the bullshit. Ultimately, yoga and meditation is for everyone. Mm. Um, when I first was entertaining the, even the idea of teaching yoga, I never even anticipated teaching yoga. Um, I kind of just had a a career shift due to a a few circumstances. Um, I was just doing it for my own personal development and knowledge and appreciation of the practice. Um, I would constantly hear people say, well, we can't get men to come into the classes and we can't get um, normal blokes to practice. Mm. And I didn't tell anyone I was practicing for many years until because of the flack, the flack that was associated with what I was going to perceive as flack. And even more so with meditation. Been meditating um, since 2004. And kept it quiet because I was just like, people aren't going to understand um, or people may be a bit hesitant or that may be very counter to what... Um, your sole occupation is. And in the military, that was trying to kill people. Um, So what are you trying to achieve here? 
So I kept that sort of to myself. Our approach is very simple. We focus on the science of what you're doing in a specific target area, what the benefits for working that target area is, and we just cut out all the BS. Hmm. It's not a religious practice. It's literally... (sighs) It's different for everyone. Hmm. The way that I saw yoga and, and teaching to military veterans and first responders was that the shifts that I had in my own body and mind throughout my own practice, I felt almost guilty that I was keeping these tools to myself and I wasn't sharing them with former colleagues um, that could benefit from the practice. Really? And I thought this just needs to be explained in a way that can be relatable to that person. And I just felt like that the vast majority of teachers were, as we said, woo-woo. Yeah. (laughs) Putting so much fluff on the practice, which didn't necessarily need to be there. Um, They were like filler words. And it was just like, oh, there's space here. Let's put a filler word in here or a cliche or a quote. Yeah. like, uh, And that taps on a certain point that has come from yoga and maybe people who started out in yoga, although they may have idealistic views of what they're trying to do. I I get this sense that uh, like you are... You know, maybe it's for a part of yourself, you're doing it for for yourself in your own way of healing, but may it seems like you, as opposed to a lot of other yoga teachers, are very, I don't know what the word is, like you're, mo- you're more focused on those people, whereas I get a sense when I've been to, to yoga classes in the past that they're just, you know, they, they put in these words, their practices, it's all like they're this amazing individual who does yoga. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Would you agree with that? I think that the false perception that teachers put out about themselves and their own practice via social media is 95% bullshit. Yeah. It is this fake persona that they've got their shit sorted. Mm. Now, I don't go in and (laughs) pretend like I've got my shit sorted at all. I'm 100% accountable for my mistakes, my, my flaws, but also finding the path of what worked for me. Mm. And that's a big focus and encouragement of what I try and do in delivering my classes is finding what works for that particular individual. Mm. Alignment-based classes for me didn't work for a number of reasons. Um, A, I was recovering from multiple surgeries and I physically couldn't do some of the poses and I didn't want to have to actually explain into detail to X, Y, Z of people about my particular medical conditions. And I was quite frustrated um, because I had compartmentalized the whole range of mental health issues. And it was the first time that I was actually coming back into my body. And then throwing the extra cliches in there and the quotes and all the extra um, showmanship, it was just unnecessary clutter. Um, Developing that awareness was something that I found if you can dissect all that extra stuff, be real, be straightforward, be accountable of what you're doing and why you're doing it, people can relate to it. You said before about coming back into your body. 
Mm. I feel like that's a very, very important point to come back to. And I'm guessing that's to do with that negative chatter in your head that so often happens when, that I guess is the most enlightening thing about the first time you do yoga or meditation is how much you're in your head. Is that what you mean by that? Um, I guess that I had shut so much out of my own physical pain, mental pain, um, and general frustrations in the world. I was at a point where I was extremely aggressive, Mm. um, almost uncontrollable. And it was the first time that I actually had the time to think. And when I came into my body and I was like, wow, I'm actually in a lot more pain than I originally took toll of. Really? Um, I'd just become used to multiple injuries in the recovery process. And it was the first time that I actually listened to what was happening in my body and my mind. I walked out of my first three classes. Really? Uh, And on the third time... I got confronted in the hallway and I was a bit sort of, don't box me in. Um, I need to go. Was this by the, the teacher? Yeah, it was by the teacher wow. and said, where are you going? And I didn't know that her husband knew me through the military as well. And um, she just said, where are you going? What are you doing? This is the third time now. And I didn't know how to react. I didn't know how to deal with what was actually happening in my body and mind because there was just sensory overload. I'd become used to blocking everything out for such a long time. I was almost lifting Pandora's box, the lid off Pandora's box, and everything just came to me. And I was just like, well, I don't know how to control this. So it was one of the very first times in my life that I chose to flee. I've always been a fight off, you know, the, the whole concept of fight or flight or freeze. And I've always gone the path of fighting. And it was the very first time I fleed. Right. So you ran? Pretty much. Because I didn't know what to make of everything coming at once. And she said to me, she said, look, you can't go to the gym once and lift weights and be ripped. You can't pick up a rifle and be an excellent shot the first time. This takes work. And I thought to myself, you know what? I've never quit anything in my entire life. I was busting my shoulder out 14 times a day and banging it back in on whatever I could just to get whatever task that was required done, done. And I would completely just block out the pain to be focused on what was required to do. And it just became the norm. And then it was the first time I came into my body And then not only noticing the physical sensations, but the mental and emotional layers as well that came at the same time was overwhelming. I can't even imagine that. So I went home and I said to myself, you know what? You're right. You can't do anything once and be excellent at it. Um, I'm going to go back. And I went back and just small snippets small snippets over an extended period of time of repetitive focus and determination of I'm just going to see what arises and watch these shifts, observe them, but I'm going to allow to be part of this process. Mm. When I was looking at 
this and how you got into the yoga, I couldn't actually find what it was. I know that you did your first class and you were, you know, as you said, you were self-conscious and those first three lessons you kept leaving. Were you leaving early? or were you just- Oh, mate, I, the, I wasn't finishing classes. Oh, okay. Was, <laughs> it was almost... Um, the, the level of hypervigilance I was at in my mind and combating several mental health issues, undiagnosed mental health issues at that point of time with physical um, conditions as well. It was almost, well, I can block out the pain if my mind is in check and I can control the mind if the body's in check. Right. But both at the same time was, <laughs> whoa, haven't... haven't uh, Pandora's box. Yeah, it? yeah. So... Who, who made the recommend... Like, when did the yoga thing materialize in your head? Did someone just go, you got to do yoga or... No. So, my process and discharge and withdrawal from the military was quite heartbreaking and, and quite frustrating. Like, um, unfortunately, a lot of soldiers had to endure. Some it, Every experience is different per soldier. I can't speak on behalf of other people, but mine was extremely frustrating and painful because I didn't really have any support. And um, I was basically, I tried every single aspect of recommended treatment. All right, you got to go to XYZ of professional, um, medical professionals, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, and none of it was really working. None of it was getting the range of motion back in my body. And they said, you're pretty much cooked. This is you now. Accept it. And I sort of had a chuckle. I'm like, this person doesn't even know me. And you're giving a limitation set that, you know, how can you give me this restriction when you don't know the power of my determination? So, so you're saying it's just like a caseworker at the veteran's office or in the army and they're literally just got like they're just looking at you like a piece of paper, like, all right, you are a number I today. Yeah. You are a number in the military. That's it. Um, and yeah, different specialists and looking at the scans, the report, the extent of the surgeries, etc. And really didn't even want to touch the mental health aspect. Um, that was an interesting process in itself. In itself, and um, I was like, you know what? I thought to myself. My first experience with yoga was at our patrol base in Afghanistan. One of the guys had, um, I pretty much got through all the books that were available to read at the patrol base. And, uh, <laughs> and he had a yoga, a thousand and one yoga asana book of poses and stuff. And um, we had a couple of hours of downtime and I was just flicking through it. And I went through a few of the ac- activities and I was like, well, this breathing technique is in parallel with what I've been doing in different trains of meditation. Now I'll use this with the, the body. And um, I slept like a baby. <laughs> and um, it dawned on me when I was going through the process of, no, this can't be it. You know, I'm a young guy and I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to be living a sedentary life for the rest of my life. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you what I'm capable of doing. And I was like, walked past this studio in my hometown and it had an introductory offer of 20 days for 20 bucks. And I walked in and had the hoodie on and I can't let anyone see, see, <laughs> see me. Um, 
Not undercover op. Undercover. <laughs> no one knew I was in the military. Um, and it was really interesting. I was so ashamed of trying something new, mm. which is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And um, the shifts became quite frequent. And it was over time that my body started opening up and I wasn't even realizing that my body was opening up because my mind was dissipating the symptoms or controlling or managing what was happening a lot better. Mm. I remember one time I just put my T-shirt on. I was like, oh, my God. I don't remember the last time I put a T-shirt on without pain. Uh When did that shift take take place and then I further went into um, further went into practicing more and it was when I turned up to the wrong class by mistake you know and if you speak to you know the modern day yogi they'll be like oh you know it wasn't a mistake and you know <laughs> fate and all that sort of stuff but uh, I really resonated with one particular teacher a male teacher okay older guy and um he really didn't give a shit about what you could or you couldn't do. I found that so refreshing. He didn't want to know the story as to my injuries. He just said, shut down the eyes, man, and just focus on what you're doing. Who cares about what you look like? And that, for me, was a profound lesson. Mm-hmm. I carry that every single day, and that's a big focus of what we do with Blind Tiger Yoga. Huh. So once I shut down the eyes and took the practice inwards and attuned that hypervigilance that I had um, to my surroundings, which is a symptom that a lot of veterans and first responders experience for prolonged uh, service periods, I was able to start shifting that inwards. And the awareness that I had of where people were walking, moving, sitting, body language, stuff that I would be constantly searching for, um, I was able to switch that. Hmm. And I was like, wow, I can feel pulsations moving from one part of the body to another. I can feel pain either uh, if it was inflamed or it was dissipating. Uh-huh. And I just made this massive paradigm shift in my relationship to the pain. So, because that's really interesting because a lot of my issues as we were speaking before with anxiety is that hot, I'm too aware Mm-hmm. So for for you almost and, and for a lot of first responders, it seems that because you've had to spend a lifetime in some cases dulling the sensations, uh, you're, you're no longer able to really feel those sensations or you don't realize how big those sensations are yeah. and what it's subconsciously doing to you. 100%. Does that sound right? Yeah. yeah. I would I'll completely, completely agree with that. Wow. I had to compartmentalize pretty much my life to be effective of in my occupation. And I believe a lot of soldiers and first responders almost become numb mm. to particular things, particular situations, language, um, and it becomes the norm. So shutting off to violence, shutting off to even interpersonal conflict, that becoming my norm, um, made me an effective soldier. Mm. But when you get out of the military, those skill sets (laughs) are not healthy. No. And 
I see it in a lot of people that we teach to, uh, different vary, varying uh, degrees of hypervigilance. And I see that as an opportunity to just teach them how to shift that, mm. to turn that inwards. It can be turned into a positive tool. Yeah. And I honestly believe that. When did you, what, what's like your earliest memory of wanting to be in the military? Since I was a little boy, a little boy. You always just wanted to be a soldier? Yes, but I didn't know what in capacity and what time. Um, my mum said from a, a young age, that's, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, Travelled for a few years at quite a young age and then came back and joined the military. Mm-hmm. Wanted to work with a focused group of individuals that um, were striving towards a common goal, had some purpose, was craving purpose. And... Um, what I got in the military was family. Mm. That's what I got. Yeah, a lot of people speak about that. I'm, I know that, um, you know, we were saying beforehand, like you're in America, like it's so popularized to have, uh, like the, the military is just so front of mind, like in movies. Um, I know you're a big Jocko Willink fan. Like a lot of Navy SEALs come out and speak about practices, which... Um, you know, I've read Team of Teams, General Stanley McChrystal, which is becoming, uh, well, is the commonplace practice in a lot of Silicon Valley companies these days in the tech scene. Uh, but in Australia, we just sort of, you know, put it under the rug, you know, just sort of keep it down down low. And I, I don't know, I've always thought about what can Australians, like the civilians, learn from that military community. We don't really talk about that much. The only thanks I ever received from my service was when I first went over to the States Hmm. and I had general members of the public thank me for my service. And I was like, what? (laughs) Um, This is part of your tour over there? No, I was just um, on holiday and um, meeting up with other US veterans and stuff. And there would be announcements of a PA system saying thank you to the troops and ads and discounts available for veterans, etc. And I was really shocked by it. I was like, wow, that's, that's weird. Like, Australia, we, we just don't have that. We give veterans attention on Anzac Day. And that's it. And that's about it. And it's interesting. I noticed that you've got Sebastian Younger's uh, tribe up there. Yeah. And he raises an interesting point about how in the States they've gone overboard with the thanking. And I see a shift in Australian society now with this new initiative of um, the veteran card and lapel pin, which is rolling out. Um, And my last trip to the States, it almost became this level of entitlement Entitlement that veterans had, American soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guard, etc. I'm a veteran, mm. so I deserve something. And it sort of made me cringe. And I was like, That's oh, the Australianness coming out in you. That's that is, yeah. yeah. But I was like, you know what? Um, no, you deserve it. The once was nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, what is what is a lapel pin gonna do? What is the veteran card going to do? Yes, it might alleviate some stress 
for people under financial burdens in certain areas. But I think it's an absolute smokescreen. It's a smokescreen for how poorly we've treated our veterans in the last 10, 15 years. It is an ultimate, hey, look at me. I, I feel like when, and I, I go back to, I remember when my, my dad was mentioning this and he was like, uh, you know, it's good to see that we're finally doing something for veterans. And uh, I feel like a lot of people may initially feel, I know obviously naturally you're going to have a lot of skepticism because you've experienced it firsthand, but I don't know. I feel like maybe it's a starting point. Maybe it could be the launching phase for a better relationship. Possibly. Yeah. Um, I know that, for instance, in the States, uh, soldiers and veterans get priority boarding. Maybe just pull the mic just Sorry. a little bit closer. You can pull it closer to you. Um, you know, they get priority boarding. And I was just looking at one of the uh, veteran pages on social media today and the backlash from Aussie veterans going, well, I don't need priority boarding. Um, I want my injuries addressed. Yeah. I want my claims, my military service-related injuries addressed in a timely manner. Uh, that is showing me respect. So you think maybe even in America, and this would make sense, that what they do as well is almost a smokescreen because they've got their own major issues with the VA system. From my observations and going over to the States and teaching um, yoga to American veterans, um, we're 10 years behind them. Really? We hear about how bad they've got it. I would actually argue that we're worse. Really? We are very, very much so 10 years behind the whole process. And it's almost... People are obliged now to say thank you for your service. And you shouldn't be obliged to say that. You shouldn't be obliged to thank me for something that you may not even believe in. Yeah. I'm not trying to discredit anyone. I know that the powers that be are trying to fix the damage that's done. But they just seem to be putting a lot of resources and time and money in just smoke screens, sleight of hand distractions from the real topics that veterans are facing. The real topics of veterans are facing is that, well, you'll on refer me to a doctor, easy case scenario, his medication. We won't question the quantities of medication that we'll give you and the frequency in which you take it. But it's almost, uh, that's the way to deal with it. Yeah. There's no end date for that. Maybe you should give us, because I feel like we don't really understand. You said before, like it's, it's potentially worse than the US. What is it like being a veteran in Australia? I can't speak on behalf of the veteran community, but a big observation for me is a piece of advice that I was given last year, and it just made a lot of sense, is that people want to be seen to help rather than actually helping. Hmm. People actually want to be seen that we're offering this service, we're giving this new initiative a crack, we're revamping the system, we're going to give the support to where it's needed, and people want their picture, look at what we're doing, 
they'll promise you the world and then they'll give you an atlas. That's the reality. I'm probably going to get some backlash from that. Um, but, but what would you do if you were made Minister of Veteran Affairs? Uh, I know it's a, it's not a front bench ministry, but it's still a ministry. Mm-hmm. If you were made the minister tomorrow, where would you? What would your first ninety days look like? What would you do? Oh, I would probably be dancing on the amazing pension package that I'll be given for doing <laughs> fuck all. Um, <laughs> um, hey, maybe you should get into politics. Yeah, look, you know, um, you know, the military pension system, you know, it's it's pretty much scraping the poverty line anyway. Mm. Uh, if I was defence minister, I would get a whole team of people together that are like-minded and proactive to working towards improving the services. There already is shifts that I've seen in the last year or two. Mm -hmm. My original experience with DVA, it took me a long time to be able to say those three letters without throwing uh, a plethora of swear words associated with it. I do believe that there is a lot of people that work for the organisation that actually want to help veterans they do want to help improve the services and the quality of lives but i believe that there's a lot a vast majority of people that it's just a job they're getting paid and they don't give a shit and they, these are just public servants or politicians public servants mm. public servants that um my experience of even offering our services our professional yoga and meditation services to what we're actually doing to them they love what we're doing um, we get the, the praise and there is some fantastic people that we're working with within the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, but there is a lot of people that need to be shown the door. Mm. Um, so my first 90 days would be, okay, who's in charge of the claims process? You're fucking gone. Mm-hmm. Two years to get a claim processed? That's ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous and unforgivable. The two years. Oh, sometimes longer for some people if they have to go through fighting for um, their claims to be assessed and processed. And this, this is literally assessing someone's injury. Do they have a case or not? Yeah, if they're if their case so it works on a point system. And let's be honest, they're an insurance company. Yeah, they sounds are like es- it. Essentially, an insurance company. Um, there is some phenomenal people, as I mentioned, that work in the system. Um, but my experience when through discharge, there was no clear pathway of, well, what happens next? Yeah. It was just a lot of serial number of reforms that you had to go through and then there was no human element attached to it. You'd receive a, email, uh, a letter in the mail saying if, if you need to be in contact, I'm here for you, 1-800 number. And then there'd be no name attached to it sometimes. And you're like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to call the 1-800 number to talk about my case. Hold on, well, that's not our department here. We've got to transfer you to Adelaide. Oh, that person's no longer here. That'll go to Perth. That'll go to another state, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And... There is no clear, definitive process of the discharge. And it's also case-by-case basis. But even proving, you know, 
the service-related injuries is frustrating in itself. Mm. And you're having to justify yourself to people that have got arts degrees and not necessarily medical health professionals. Mm. Um, I had to explain to a lady what an infantry soldier did. I'm like, wow, you work in claims. You're assessing the nature of my injuries when you're not a mental, mental or physical health provider or professional. You are literally a Bachelor of Arts degree public servant and you're determining my future. I, and that's not even to mention uh, the frustration of people going, well, where's the documented evidence of your injuries? Well, on patrol bases in Middle East area of operations, injuries happen all the time. Guys don't go fill out pieces of pieces of paper for every single injury. <laughs> yeah, that while they they're get. being shot at. Just hang on, one sec. I'm just gonna. Yeah, I'm. Twelfth of August. Yeah, shot in leg. Like those <laughs> extensive injuries, etc., are documented in patrol reports and. Um, we can't really go too much into the process of that. But they're done after the fact. But they're done like, after the fact. You know, and you, you're not having a car accident and taking photos on your iPhone. No. You're in a war zone. No, exactly. So um, even getting statements, trying to find your medical documents that you don't necessarily have access to, to find out the proof of, you know, this is contributed to this on this date. Wow. The whole process was unbelievably painful. How would you change that? How would you make it a fairer process? You know, if you've if you got that injury, would it just be well? That's just some. That's just part of the course. You 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 want to put people into a war zone? Then this is a a cost that you're going to have as a society. And then you've got you've got a mm. you've got a you've got a sort of. I mean, there's always going to be cases of fraud, but it's not. I would say that it's a very, very small percentage. But if you are putting people in a war zone, I would think that that's a necessary cost that you have to pay. You have to look after these people. Um, of course. Well, there needs to be accountability. Um, you know, if you were to injure yourself in a civilian place of work, you know, you would be covered appropriately and there'd be the steps and channels to take place and most of the time it's clear clear cut and quite definitive Mm. um in the military it's not clear at all yeah i know that there's a massive focus on revamping that system and that process at the moment um but how many people have taken their own lives waiting for it yeah that's what i'm thinking about where is the accountability for that yeah where is the accountability of people denying claims for service-related injuries or even support when, you know, you call a 1-800 number and they'll get back to you in maybe a couple of months. There is a phenomenal amount of... uh, Sorry to get back to to your question about what would I do to change that is I would probably speak to the members that are in charge of all the medical facilities, the senior medical officers, the nurses, both civilian and military, and the medics, and ask them what would be the best way to move forward in making this a streamlined, clear-cut process. Mm. So that would probably be the best way of action. Ask the people that deal with the actual health aspect of soldiering. 
What what are all the different services that are part of uh, the DVA? Is it I mean, everything you'd expect from Medicare plus more? Uh, so they have a card system. Um, so uh, gold card being all injuries, all accepted injuries, and white card being um, injury specific. Okay. Um, so for instance, if it's an accepted condition, um, whether it be a physical and mental health issue, um, you'd be able to get treatment covered under that card system. Now, the white card was issued post I discharged to anyone for mental health. Um, but also that was a damage control measure as well because the suicide rate was so ridiculously high. Mm. Um, a lot of damage control after the fact. Yeah. A lot of damage control after the fact. Um, I want to get into what is blind tiger yoga. Sure. Um, because we could probably rant about oh, I could talk <laughs> better in affairs yep. for a very long time. Uh, but I want to start with something that we were chatting about beforehand, which was the the mental issues, and particularly around suicide. I know that. Uh, well, I just I, f- I found looking through everything you've done. I mean, recently you've been r- reading uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, and just had me thinking about that negative thought patterns and uh, like you you just must have a very I don't know, a very nuanced view on this stuff by now because you, you seem to have be, a, been through a lot and have experienced a lot and also be teaching people how to deal with it. Um, it just had me thinking, like, what is the state? You know, you've talked a lot about suicides. What is the state of this situation? I don't think people really have any perspective. There's a veteran suicide register that um, a bunch of people have at the moment um, that have been doing the last couple of years, which is quite eye-opening. I wouldn't be able to tell you the figure to date. Yeah. Just just on that, um, that was something that I came across doing research is that, uh, you know, the stats, I think you may have mentioned it. Uh, what is it? Um, when you leave the military it's not included as a military-related death or something. It like becomes that. an Australian statistic. Yeah, becomes a society societal statistic. And so, therefore, the general public probably doesn't have a real view of how bad it is. I believe that they do now. Um, there is so many awareness campaigns for every single sickness and illness and disease, etc., that's out there rights, etc. Um, I believe that people have always been aware of it. Mm. But I also believe the reality is is that unless you're immediately related to one of those people, no one gives a shit. Yeah. That's the harsh reality. Yeah. And when I accepted that people didn't give a shit, I could actually move forward a lot easier and go, you know what? The only way that there's going to be a massive shift is us helping each other. We really can only help ourselves. And an interesting um, experience that I had last year. Um, so to date, Blind Tiger has taught to 6,826 veterans and first responders, not only in Australia, but internationally as well. And we're roughly getting 80% of those return. And this is just showing by these numbers alone, and we have all the data, we have this all recorded, 
that people are looking for alternative modalities for their health and well-being. Now, the Department of Veterans Affairs and the military don't accept a whole range of health modalities, complementary health modalities, to help them in their own recovery. So um, stuff that may work for one person may not work for another. Um, Yoga and meditation worked for me. And I thought to myself, when I heard my 13th mate had taken his life, and I was only talking to him a very brief time before I heard that news, I had this overwhelming sense of guilt that I was holding back these skills that helped me in my own recovery and is still helping me. And I wasn't sharing it. And the difference in what we're doing with Blind Tiger is that the relatability of being able to connect with these veterans and first responders because we've gone through a similar path. Hmm. And last year, um, I forget what time of the year it was, I had a particular incident when I lost two veterans in in the space of about four, a Tuesday and a Friday. And some phenomenal experience that I learned from that, obviously the pain associated with hearing that loss, was the first gentleman told me that that was his intention, that he'd tried everything that was out there and he... Um, his mind was made up. So the... Um, sorry. Sorry. I took it upon myself. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to let this slip. He's identified a red flag. I'll go through the appropriate channels, contacted the police, etc. cetera. Um, you know, I'm not a mental health practitioner and I don't stick out of the confines of what I'm qualified to do, but I can listen. I can listen to these members and um, try to get in contact with family members, friends. The guy literally had no one. And I don't know of anyone in the military that doesn't at least have one mate. It's a family in itself. And I put a lot of time, a lot of energy, and um, a lot of time in trying to provide the appropriate support services for this gentleman. I didn't know him when I served. He was from a different unit and um, a different part of the country. And I got a hold of his parents or his father, and his father said, I'm surprised that he hasn't done it already. Jesus Christ. Are you serious? So got him in to see various specialists, got him into um, which didn't work. Ultimately, his mind was made up. And I got a call from a mental health professional and I was speaking to this gentleman every day for four months. Can you imagine the mental and emotional stress of just waiting for a phone call that something's happened? Mm. And I took it upon myself to fight for this bloke because not only did I feel sorry for him, but I was trying to save a part of myself as well. And um, I got a call from... Uh, a mental health professional saying, Tristan, we need to actually prepare you. Really? I thought I was in trouble because I may have given some advice or said something that I shouldn't be saying. And um, he said he's going to do it and he's just 
his mind has been made up. So he got released from a mental health facility, um, told the taxi driver to pull over and jumped in front of a train. And he was done. And then when I received the phone call, I was quite surprised that I received the phone call. He said, you're being listed as his next of kin. Shit. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even know the guy that much. But I didn't feel like anyone that was giving him the support in which he needed. And I on-referred him to so many different people. almost exhausted the options that I had at my um, disposal. And then on Friday, I heard that a guy that I did know, I wasn't very close friends with him. I just knew the guy had taken his life. And it's interesting that society gets up in arms and blames. We all want someone to blame. We all want someone to point the finger at in these horrid circumstances. And people were saying DVA should do more and DVA should do more. And I know that I, I have had my own problems with them, but it was the first time I was just like, this actually isn't DVA's issue. I spoke to that gentleman three weeks prior contacted me out of the blue which I was a bit sort of like what do you want just cut the fat and get to what you want and he stated um, life's pretty shit blah 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 um, and he just had a rant and we get this three five times a day of people really? just using us as an emotional punching bag and unloading and I'm okay with that but also it takes its toll in, its, in itself. And he listed these issues that he had and in the whole spectrum of those close to 7,000 veterans that I've taught to, I've taught to triple amputees, people with, you name it, of physical and mental conditions we've been able to teach to. We've been able to find a practice that works for them. And... I gave him roughly an A4 list of different stuff to try. I said, what about this? What, first off, I asked him, what have you actually done for your own recovery? What have you physically done for yourself? He just wanted to blame the system. Hmm. And he said, I've been to the pool twice in the last year and a half. And I gave him an A4 list of different alternatives that he could try. And he just said, oh, it's all rubbish, just dismissed it straight away. And that was the last, that was the last um, I'd heard from him. And um, one of my mates that was on the witch hunt to burn someone because of they wanted someone accountable, the reality dawned on me that there's... Two people you can't help, the ones that their mind's been made up, mm-hmm. and the second is those that don't want to help themselves. Yeah. I can see why Jocko Willink's book had a very big impact for you. Especially for accountability. Yeah. It's quite frustrating because um, we have many frustrations. Every single human does, and no different from anyone else, but... A big focus for us at Blind Tiger is that we give you the tools to help yourself. 
or will start finding the tools to help you help yourself. But if your mind's been made up that there can be no help, or if your mind's been made up that you don't want to help yourself, you're impossible to, to get through to. Yeah. You need to want to help yourself. And that was a reality that really sort of knocked me around those truths. And I was just like, wow, the accountability for yourself, wanting to make yourself better, wanting to make yourself um, work with what you have. Yeah. Not getting caught up in the past of what you couldn't do. I could write you a whole sob story of all the things that I wish I could still do. And people don't see what it's taken to get to where I'm at now. Mm. People don't see the thousands upon thousands of hours of personal practice. People don't see the thousands of hours of self-development and teacher trainings. And people don't see the constant ability to go, all right, this option is exhausted. I'm going to go find another one. Mm. And we try and encourage that mindset into people. Maybe the practice didn't resonate with you now. It may later. But the fact that you tried this means you can try something else. Well, I'm glad to hear that in what would have been a very tough period that you've come to a realization of that as opposed to, oh, it's my fault. Do you know what I mean? I, and I'm sure that that's there. I, I exhausted everything that I could possibly do. Yeah. But when we probably get three to five people on average a day, um, in between three and five, uh, contact us and, you know, they'll unload their story and their circumstance. And most of the time they're not actually wanting to find a method or a tool to help themselves. They just want to unload on someone. Mm. They use you as an emotional punching bag and then they leave. Yeah. And then you're like, wow, where do I take that? Thank you. Um, Well, that's what I mean. And that's what I'm thinking about is, you know, like what you're doing is very important. But it's just like in in any of these fields, like if you're dealing with people's mental health, it's, you know, you've I don't know. I feel like a lot of people would carry that. Um, and like look, having, having dealt with psychologists myself with my own issues, like it would just be exhausting. And that's what people don't see. They arrive to the class. They get taken through the the practice, and it's quite sociable. And um, they don't see what it takes to get to what the product is. They don't see the behind the scenes. The amount of meetings that we've gone to, the amount of um, ways that we're trying to revamp and make it adaptable to every single person, no one sees that. Mm. But on top of that, you get the from the public realm of teaching yoga and meditation, I'm a pretty straightforward person. I'll call a spade a spade, and I don't sugarcoat it. Mm. And... That I see almost as a threat to some teachers. People have used ancient teachings and modern teachings to suit their own agenda. My agenda is to give those people the space to learn what works for them. Mm -hmm. And 
people see a, a big, uh, a large, well, a larger Australian bloke, and go, well, what would you know about yoga? And we focus on the West, just on the physical asana. We we focus on the physical poses of yoga, and that's not the blind tiger yoga mindset. Is to be present with what's happening in your body and your mind. Mm-hmm. So we give them an intention, a target area, and it's up to them to develop their own awareness and attention to what they're actually doing. Mm. But the eyes are closed and it's taking inwards. It's not a comparative practice and it's not a competition. Yeah, not comparing yourself to others. That's something that you mentioned a lot. It's, it's yeah. a fundamental key aspect of yoga. Yeah. Yet... We have people whose bodies are predisposed to being able to naturally do certain ranges of motion, and we immediately assume that because that they can make their bodies form into a pretzel, their knowledge of the philosophy of the anatomy and physiology is quite high. Yeah. And they're the usual people that are giving these medical advice out. Popping shoulders out mid-class. Popping shoulders mid-class. The most underrated and underspoken thing of in yoga is skeletal variation. Yeah. Certain people's bones won't make them go to a certain range of motion. And this is where the injuries happen. It's because people are trying to force themselves to get into these poses that anatomically just does not suit their body. This way of thinking that we're all the same on the inside. That's lovely to tell children, but it's absolute bullshit and a fantasy. Yeah. Skeletal variation, injury history. So if you go to an alignment-based class that you must have your knee in a certain position and you must have your wrist in a certain spot to achieve the process, where did that come from? Someone's come out with that and run with it. <laughs> no one's correct. No one's questioning it's it. It's a good story. It's a good story to sell to people. Yeah. Mar- marketing, like I said. That's it. I, I love, um, you know, we were looking at this before, the uh, namaslay. It's such a good term, but uh, the Ben Cant- Cantwell, that's how I pronounce it, right? Yeah, Cantwell, yeah. Cantwell Art. The audience, they probably can't see it on the camera, but we'll make sure we link it. Ben Cantwell, he's on Instagram. He's a great artist. Uh, I wanted to go into just some of the basics on what, blind tiger is because some people are probably thinking yeah you guys have been talking about this and that for a while but what actually is it uh, maybe you could start off with uh how the name came from tiger battalion mm-hmm. and talk about uh yin what is it yin yoga and yoga nidra yin yoga and yoga nidra so first off um the name blind tiger yoga i look at a lot of studios around the world and they've got very lovely um, names Om Shanti Shanti Yoga and um, a whole range of names that the average man is going to look at and go, nope, nope, nope. Um, I'm good, thanks. Uh, Bye. <laughs> yeah, see ya. Um, you know, you, it, this is maybe a news flash for some people, but you don't have to be wearing tights, have a man bun, and uh, change your name to be Shiloh to be a... a yoga teacher or practitioner you can be an average day bloke and all woman and still have your own belief systems you have your own processes your own training regimes etc and reap the benefits now 
Blind Tiger Yoga, for me, a big focus in yin yoga is turning that hypervigilance into self-awareness and self-exploratory of your own body and mind. If you're looking around the room, you're comparing. Looking at someone else and how they go into a pose is not going to actually help you. You need to discover this with your own movement, your own exploration. And if you're just going through the movements by alignment-based postures, you're never going to get there. Mm. So the blindfold represents not only the physical and mental injuries that you may be sustaining or none whatsoever, if you're looking at it for a peak performance perspective. It's just adding a different aspect of how you're going about your health training and overall well-being. And I came up with the name and the logo when I was playing French music trivia in southern France when I had no idea um, what was going on. Uh, Funnily enough, we won, which was even funnier. Um, (laughs) And I was just like, yeah, I had had the name and the vision years before I even knew that I was going to teach, which is weird. Um, But that's, that's sort of how these things materialize in our head. Definitely. We think of this archetypical thing. This is my business. This is my organization. This is my thing. This is what I'm about. Definitely. Um, I didn't really have a set business plan or a process of attack. I was just like, you know what? And I spoke, I was going along to these teacher trainings and I said to my teacher, I don't know if I'm the right person to be teaching yoga. Like, I love throwing weights around. I love my jiu-jitsu. I love (laughs) um, stuff that's usually uh, anti-yoga. And he just said to me, Tristan, doesn't matter what you're doing, wherever you are in the world, somebody somewhere will say that you're doing it wrong and you have no right to be doing it. Hmm. And his response to that was, fuck them. And uh, I was like, wow, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm passionate about this because it's worked for me. Mm. And I'm not saying it's going to work for everyone, but yin yoga was a great pathway for me that was accessible for everyone. And yin yoga focuses on a completely different aspect of training that I'd never been exposed to before. So it has the benefits of uh, science-based proven um, postures and the benefits and it also has a combination of Taoist philosophy and Sankhya philosophy. So it has a bit of a mixture of it all. What you choose to throw into the class is going to be completely up to the teacher, obviously. Hmm. But um, it's, very, it's very much uh, floor-based postures, static. Um, you can have slow-flowing movements, etc. but it's a mindfulness-based practice in itself. When you say floor-based, like people are mainly lying down? Mainly lying down, mainly on the floor. There is moving yin, um, asana, postures, poses, whatever you want to call it. And the majority of it is static for longer periods of time. Minimum holds of three minutes, the maximum of 20. Wow. I personally love the 20-minute holds, um, but know that everyone else isn't necessarily a fan. Um, 20-minute hold per situation what what would you call it pose pose yeah Yeah. so and they're not aesthetically pleasing you'll never see a yin yogi on the cover of Australian yoga journal or any yoga magazine for that matter and a lot of advanced yogis um, 
I've only really started getting into yin yoga in the last couple of years where it's really seemed a, a boom and a shift. And where do you take your mind in that three minutes to 20 minutes? Mm. It's a lot of practices of strength, respect, and discipline for your own body and mind. Yeah. Transferable skills that soldiers and first responders have, and they respond to it very well. That's something that you mentioned to me before we started speaking about, uh, before we started even recording, is that uh, so much of what you do as a first responder is pushing your body past that breaking point. And that's why so many people come back with these injuries. Definitely. I mean, um, as I said earlier as well, that your mind's going to tap out before the body does. Yeah. So my approach is leave your phone and your watch at the door with your ego. <laughs> I never tell any of my students how long they're going to be in a posture for. The first couple of years of me practicing, I tortured myself by having my watch on. And the teacher would say, you're going to hold this for X amount of time. And I'd be shutting down my eyes. I'll be holding the posture. And then I would open my eyes. Surely that's five minutes. And it was like 33 seconds. <laughs> and I was just like, come on, come on, come on. And then I would be so taken away from the practice. Yeah. And... Then it got to a point where I left the watch away, but they were playing the same playlist. And I knew how long, how many minutes each song was. And I'm just like, okay, I've been in this for four minutes, 22 now, because that's how long the track goes for, etc. So I play instrumental music that doesn't have um, any dialogue, ambient sounds, something that they can't fixate on a specific pinpoint. Uh I don't have any watches or clocks that they can visually see and I don't tell them the time. I distract them with what's happening in the body and the mind. Yeah. And then at the end of the practice, I usually ask them how long they believe that they've been holding the the poses for. And it's still to this day quite amusing. People are like, oh, three minutes, two minutes, you know, and I'll be like, you've been holding that for 15 minutes of pose. I'm like, if you were to look at your watch or you were to have your eyes moving around the room or if you were even to know the time before going into the pose, you would mentally tap out before physically. It's interesting that you talk about distraction there because I found for me that that has been so crucial in relieving anxiety. Mm-hmm. Like it just... Uh, and you had as well on your Instagram profile about that that nasal breathing technique eternal nostril breath yeah that's right yeah so it seems like that i don't know what school that comes from is that uh prana or something like that uh pranayama yeah yeah is is that where you've a lot of your influences come from when it comes to yoga just and then obviously naturally you want to help this community and you say because i've done it well this is the thing to help us um because you're obviously a, a, a lifelong student. You know, we're talking before about reading. Yeah, look, um, my influences are quite broad. Um, Paul Grilly, um, founder of Yin Yoga and my teacher. Um, a lot of his teachings, Bernie Clark um, from Canada. Um, but also a lot of reading and how I can interpret that and transfer ancient teachings and modern day teachings into a way that the average person can relate to. Um, 
the combination of yin yoga and yoga nidra, uh, so yoga nidra means sleep-based meditation, and I would say by far it's one of the most popular forms of meditation that's accessible to everyone. Yeah. So you lie down and you basically go to sleep, and you're in a state between waking and sleeping. You drop in and out of consciousness. Some people are just dribbling on themselves the entire time. <laughs> and you'd have people argue and say, well, that's not meditation. Now, that's an interesting topic in itself because what my meditation is and yours could be completely different. Mm. And it's the same of mindful living and mindful actions and mindful activities. What my meditation is and what my yoga is is completely different from person next to me and so forth so we take them through these long-held postures at an appropriate depth suited for their range of motion we hold them for time i distract them for the first 24 to 36 minutes and that's when we're roughly the average person takes to go from the sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system so they go from that fight or flight sort of activity in the brain And then roughly between that 24 to 36 minutes, we switch to that rest and digest. And that's when I be quiet. Really? And let them sink and really feel what's happening. So do you think that even if you were meditating and and, uh, whether it's with yourself or others, that really it takes almost a minimum of 30 to 40 minutes to get the full benefit of... No. No. No? No. I believe that in time that gets reduced dramatically. Okay. I believe that the yoga nidra, the sleep-based meditation, not only has it had various um, scientific papers written by Dr. Richard Miller and his iRest method in the Walter Reed Medical Facility in the U.S., but sleep-based meditation is an easy access point for people that would be shy to meditation. Hmm. It's a gateway. Yeah. Yin is a gateway to other styles and practices of yoga. Yeah. And when people get that level of awareness, when they go into more of the yang styles, the more active styles of yoga, their awareness is just through the roof. Yeah, cuz I've uh it's it's so interesting you mentioned that because you know, I've only just started doing it over the last few days. I got this uh it's not there on the bench, but I've got like a diary, like I think I said, that I have in my pocket all the time and I write if I'm anxious. And, and you just notice that over time, the more you practice, the more that you sort of take away from that amygdala flight and fight response or freeze. And then you go more into sort of your rest digest system. Um, that's really interesting because I've mainly used mindfulness meditation, but I've never tried yin. Whatever works for you. Yin is a form of moving mindfulness. Yeah. And I incorporate mindfulness, yoga nidra, and yin aspects, but also a lot of philosophy into the practice as well. But it's choosing your audience. How you relate to your audience is also so critical it's not funny. Of course, yeah. And when I first started teaching, I had surprisingly a lot of emails, not of support, of how much I'm going to fail. Really? Yeah. This is from yogis. Oh, wow. I tried. Can't happen. They won't do it. They won't respond to it. And straight away, I would say to them, what's your relationship to them? Oh, so you're not a veteran, a first responder, 
or you're not directly related. It's not your mother, your brother, your uncle, your dad. You don't have any direct understanding or comprehension of what those people are like as a person, as, <laughs> you know, maybe look inwards. Maybe look on your delivery. Maybe look on how you're going to connect with that person, that group. How I teach to a public class is completely different to how I would teach to a veteran class, to how I would teach to current serving peak performing soldiers. Yeah. Well, it just goes to your point. Like you're, you're scratching your own itch. Like you're, you're, you understand where they're coming from. So for it to be successful and work is not only having that base understanding of comprehension, but more importantly, we've come to a point in uh, the yoga industry in particular, and meditation will go that way as well, is I've done my course with this person or that person. It's become a form of dick measuring. <laughs> and on people's resumes, it's I've learned through this person I've done X amount of hours. Now, um, I'm always cautious of when people refer to someone as a master. I'm like, hmm, I've met a lot of 21-year-old masters lately. And it's been very interesting because... My first question is when people either hand in a resume or connect and they'll spend the first 20 minutes of talking who they've trained through and what they've done. And my first question is, how often do you practice? And how often do they answer? Most of them are quite stumped. Mm. Most of them are quite stumped with that question. And I won't even continue reading who they've trained through. I don't care who you've done your training through. How often do you practice? Because mm. you can see that a mile away. <laughs> and this is where that cliche woo-woo feeling comes through and it becomes this theatrical piece and people are like, oh, I feel lovely, but they've been given no tools that they can actually utilize in their day-to-day -day life and activities when stress and anxiety and depression and all these symptoms arise. You're not giving them any insight to their own exploration because you don't have it yourself. Mm. And I'm not trying to be author authoritarian in this, but I believe that it's more important to have your own self-practice than a ticket. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I mean, if you're not scratching your own itch, if you're not practicing, what, what are you doing? And that's where um, the other members and teachers of Blind Tiger, we resonate so well and we work so well together because they practice. You know, um, Ross Walker, one of my right-hand man in Blind Tiger Yoga, he's been meditating for over 25 years, been a soldier for over 30 years. His relatability is just phenomenal. His own dedication not only to serving members of the defense force but the broader community is outstanding it's indescribable the amount of energy that that man puts into giving without striving for accolade or claim and what struck me was how often he practiced and this was before he even was qualified as a teacher so because you practice for like two hours a day. Two to four hours. 
usually six days a week. And that's not just because I love it. It's because I need that to deal with my physical and mental injuries. Yeah. It's been, if I could run without pain or if I could do certain activities again, I would be doing them. But I've had to adapt to what I can do and really drop that, well, you can't do that anymore, <laughs> which where a lot of people live. Yeah. People live in the, I could do that. What's that negative thinking that we all fall into? Yeah. You know, I've been susceptible to it and I haven't exactly been through a war zone. It's just, uh, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a mindset that you let yourself fall into, 100%. Before we get get into some short, fast questions, I was curious because you posted a picture and a fascinating story, and I'd love to see more of these because I think people would really enjoy hearing about it. Obviously, you got to get their permission, but there was an ex-South Australian paramedic, paramedic that you're posting about, and just his story, and it was, um, you know, like I said, I liked hearing about it, and so it just made me think, what's been the most impactful story for you in someone that you've dealt with so far wow um I know good question good question out of the close to seven thousand veterans that we've taught to we've only had two negative experiences so that just goes to show how much people are really resonating with what we're doing mm. and from hearing the older guys from the vietnam era come up to you and say in 30 years, I've just had the first night of complete sleep. Yeah. Or um, people with a whole range of physical injuries saying, for that 90 minutes, I wasn't in pain. You know, that's been more rewarding than any, any paycheck that I received commercial diving, um, any almost more than serving mm. hearing these guys finding the tools we don't take credit for that that's them yeah they took themselves there and it was i would say another one would be quite phenomenal and seeing these shifts day in day out is what keeps us going teaching 20 to 25 classes a week um has been extremely tiring and unsustainable and we need to grow and we need to expand. But we need other people to get on board with this. A particular incident, I had a guy come in and he was just spitting fire, swearing. Um, this is for this type of person, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I just snapped at him straight away. And I just said, you've got 30 seconds to turn around and get out or I'm going to throw you out. Don't mistake my kindness for weakness. And uh, I just started counting. I said, you're welcome to come back when you change your attitude. But until then, I'm not going to make you infect this environment with your negativity. And he came back a few weeks later and he said, do you mind if I come in? I said, you're up front, right in front of me. Um, and he's been there every day since. since. Wow. Complete change, complete shift. Seeing people drop the story is phenomenal to see. People, That's what I mean, that stoic community. People living in the story of their injuries or their history and dropping it and yeah. moving forward with their lives. You know, that's not us. That's 
them developing the awareness in themselves. We're not teachers, we're facilitators. Yeah. And the difference is that we're actually giving them the tool sets or the foundations to then take themselves to the next step. And then when they get to a point of comprehension of where they're at, we then on refer them to local studios and other people and go, I think you should try this guy out or this girl out or this studio out or whatever. Um, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, we'll get check-ins from them every now and then and I'm off doing this and I'm off doing that and, and I never thought I would have looked at this therapy but this works for me. That's what we're about. We're not trying to build an empire of blind tiger yogis. We're trying to show people that there is alternatives out there for your own health and well-being. You still need to link in to your doctors, your psychologists and psychiatrists and your appropriate rehab plans, but you also need to find the tools of what works for you. Mm. And this way of thinking that this term solution to veteran issues and problems I was at a point when I got referred to a mental health provider and I went through a series of different mental health providers before I hit the right one. And I remember one of the early experiences and this psychologist said, tell me what's on your mind. And I just unloaded. And in the middle of me unloading, she got up, started crying, walked out of the door, never came back. Wow. <laughs> I was like... You asked what was on my mind. I told you. And then the secretary came in and said, we're going to have to unrefer you to someone else. Jesus. And they never did. And it was very heartbreaking and frustrating because people tell you, do this, do that, do that, and follow this process and you'll be fine. Um, but ultimately, I forget where else. <laughs> <laughs> I, I forget where I was going with that. Um, Let it come back to you. It was more along the lines with uh, mental health providers and... Um, yeah, it was just generally about this not being... It, it's not a silver bullet. Like, n- it's no. never going to be. Sorry, that's that's where I was going with this. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to read your book titles in the background and also, like, take a mental picture. I'm like, oh, I have to read that. Right. Sometimes I um, look at my notes and I'm like, uh, like, mid-question, mid I'm like, what what am I saying? Nah, it's <laughs> <laughs> I, I have uh, goldfish mind just like everyone else. Um, but it's a complementary health modality. Hmm. Um, this sorry, that psychologist said um, this therapy was going to be the solution. Yeah. And I remember going through the process and I just cracked up laughing. I was like, this is the solution. And I went to the pub and I had about 10 pints because I was devastated. I was like, that was the solution. And it didn't work. Yeah. So if I'm going to be living with this level of physical pain for the rest of my life, this is, how, this is how people fall into these situations of suicide. I was, they, they believe it's that. I was going to shoot myself. Yeah. I was cleaning my rifle. I hadn't slept for about eight, nine days. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get sleep. I turned it on myself. Yeah. And in that second, I realized, what the fuck am I doing? Hmm. And that term solution 
should be completely avoided. Because there is no silver bullet, as you said. And that really just sparked that pathway of inquiry to find what works for you. Mm. We have people come to classes and go, you know what? The fact that I gave your class a crack actually went and tried X, Y, Z. And that worked, you know? So, success. Yeah. I think that that has been a key theme when you read, when you go on your website, when you listen to your interviews, when you see you speak on Instagram. That's such a key component that you re-emphasize is this is an ongoing thing and it's not going to be forever. It's, it's cumulative. Yeah. You know, yoga only works when you show up. Now, when you drop the idea that you come to yoga to learn to stand on your head and realize you come to yoga to get your head out of your ass, <laughs> you can proceed a lot quicker. Yeah, leave your ego at the door. Leave your ego at the door. I like that. It's a good little term. And, you know, it's, it's not a competition. Yeah. And for soldiers and first responders, especially soldiers, very competitive mindset. Um. It's one of the very few things that isn't a competition and it's not in comparison, but it's a cumulative progress mm. and you cannot compare where people are at. Yeah. Yoga and meditation. I want to jump into some short, fast questions to finish you off. I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, you've got a pretty intense morning routine. Tell us about it. Uh, usually up at 3.55. Yeah. And then I go through um, roughly two hours of self-practice and I was doing that for um, six days a week for nearly six years and it wasn't just recently that I stopped going to that extreme and then um, roughly driving 1400 kilometers around Victoria um, of delivering classes to people in remote locations that can't access um, the classes in in uh, their local areas and um, the tempo and the demand that we have for the classes. So it's pretty much move on the go. Mm. Um, We still dedicate plenty of time for our own uh, education and practice. So read two to three books per week. Um, And then if there's time in the evening to do another one to two hours of practice. So um, pretty intense day pretty intense day but it's the times that the most exhausting aspect is listening to these members unload and not being able to comment Mm. they've given you this trust to open up about their own physical and mental health and their own lives and we have a very 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 strict confidentiality um, between our our students and teachers and taking that pain that they're going through. And this is not what people get subjected to see or people ringing you up at certain hours or getting in contact with you with their own particular um, cases and a lot of on-referring. Yeah. A lot of... Constant conversations. Constant. I remember I spoke to... um Jeff Kennett last year and when he was chairman of Beyond Blue, that was actually the biggest part of his job. His constant random calls from people with people that they knew that were in trouble. And uh, it's sort of part part of the job that 
you know, a lot of people don't know about, I think. The, the biggest aspect of that is with a physical injury, you can put a timeline down as a rough estimate of how you'll get to a certain level post, um, post-injury. With mental health, there is no timeline. Everyone's going to be varying, but also it comes back to those people that don't want to be helped, mm. those people that have got their minds made up, and the people that are also about peak performance. Yeah. So there's various, various elements and layers that people don't see. And I believe that social media has painted this picture that everyone's killing it. <laughs> and it's, that's fucking not for sure <laughs> it's not it's not real at all um you mentioned books mm-hmm. uh, if you had a book if you had to gift a book for christmas this year for the audience one book oh this, this is a tough one Ooh. uh what would it be and why oh you've got me there i spend most of my paycheck on books <laughs> and <laughs> giving books out um, Maybe if you can think about one in the last year in particular that's had a big impact. The Book of Listening. Okay. By Gene Klein. And why is that? Because it's fundamental skill sets that I think we all understand but we don't actually put into practice. I think that that's a fantastic book. Um, all of Gene Klein's works. The Book of, of Listening. The Book of Listening. I like that. Um, I also believe the foundations of mindfulness mm-hmm. and also Jason Siff's book of Thoughts Aren't the Enemy. And that was a pretty profound book in the last year because in meditation you hear people going, well, I can't still my mind. Well, trying to still the mind is like trying to put out the sun with a water bottle. <laughs> Meditation isn't designed to disconnect you from thinking and stop thinking and come to this place of stillness. It's to be with the process of the thoughts in an allowing mind frame of letting it pass, mm. slowing that metronome down. And we get told all the time, just go back to the breath. Don't, don't listen to the distractions. Well, the distractions are the meditation. Mm. The process. And it was the the first time I was just like, whoa, where were you 14 years ago? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Last question for you. Best purchase under $200? Oh, I don't know if I can say that on on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Best purchase under $200. I would say something that I do actually daily... Um, only my girlfriend is actually privy to it. Um, every time that I buy a coffee, I buy one for the next person that comes in. Uh-huh. And I remember one day a few years back when I was having a pretty shitty day. Um, just wanted a sign that humanity was still out there. <laughs> um, that we all hadn't become just mindless fake drones that's portrayed on Instagram. And um, I went to the counter and they said, 
the lady beforehand bought you this coffee. And that's all I needed, that just random act of kindness. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to do this without any thought or reward and I'm just going to do it for the sake of doing it. But what's been the interesting observation is how people react to it, especially if the coffee shop or the barista um, or the owner tells the person who it was. And you can get a a range of reactions. Uh, When people come up and thank you, that's nice, but you don't do it for the thank you. You'd rather do it anonymously. Um, But when people go, what do you want? Oh, really? Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. What do you want? I'm like, I want want nothing from you, mate. That's weird. It's called kindness. But that's such a weird reaction. I'd never think to react like that. But under, other than that, um, I would say that every every winter, um, I'll go to raise outdoors around a condor or something, and I'll get a couple of hundred bucks worth of clothing um, for a homeless person, and I'll go up and give that to them with the receipt and I'll tell the shop that I buy it from. This person could either come back and exchange it for, return it for money or change it for different items of the same value and usually they're all okay for that. Mm. And um, we had a, I did it years ago, years ago that um, I first did it and I was in my hometown and I was having a beer just watching the waves and this guy came up to me and said, were you the guy that bought a homeless guy some clothes a few years ago? And I'm thinking, oh, am I, is this going to turn into a blue or some type of verbal dispute? And he goes, I was that guy. And he goes, that was the act of kindness that I needed. I actually went and got some crisis support, got into a share house, got back on my feet. I just needed a glimpse of humanity. Wow. And that was, I was just like, I've never told anyone that. Wow. Um, so if the audience can do one thing, it's buy your neighbor a coffee. <laughs> buy your neighbor a coffee, but also just ultimately everyone's going through stress you know nothing about. Mm. So don't be a dick. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not hard. It's really not hard. Um, and I try to live by that. You know, every there was a version of myself a long time ago that anyone looked at me in the wrong way and I would have, you know, I'd be all game on for a punch on. Yeah. And I lived my life with such aggression and ferocity. That wasn't who I was. It was uh, conditioning of circumstance and a whole range of things. But it shifted. Mm. It shifted in a big way and I was just like, Wow, like ev- I've never met anyone that's never had stress or anxiety. I've never no met one. anyone that hasn't gone through. No one's unique in that aspect. But we can change how we interact with people by just being kind. Yeah, kill them with kindness, as kill we said with, at the start. Kill them with kindness. Uh, look, Tristan, this has been really good. There's a lot that I haven't covered. but uh, <laughs> Can do uh, you know, like I said, I, th- I knew we'd rant on about some sort of different topics, but uh, thank you so much for coming in. Where can people find more about you and Blind Tiger Yoga? 
Uh, first off, thank you for having me. Um, I don't know if I just spoke in riddles and have people <laughs> more confused. That's most likely the case. Um, so you can find more about Blind Tiger Yoga via Instagram, Facebook, and also blindtigeryoga.com. Um, you can find more about me at uh, tristanrose.com.au and, um, and also via social media. Okay. We'll make sure we link all of that. And uh, like I said, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for making it to the end. Before you run off, we need your help to grow this audience. Subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you priority access and help your fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon or consider sharing this with a friend who you think would enjoy these sorts of episodes and this will go a very, very long way in helping us build the audience. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and Twitter or consider subscribing on YouTube as well. You just need to search for Neural, N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E or consider following us on Instagram as well by searching Uncommon, U-N-C-O-M-M-O-N. But until next time, thank you so much for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Are you an entrepreneur or maybe a marketer who wants to grow their business through content production? Maybe you're sick of dealing with agencies or want an outsourced solution that actually fits a budget? Well, Neural Media, our business, can help you with simple and affordable content production, saving you time and money by taking away that pain of producing the content. If you want to learn more, just head to neural.com slash media, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash media. Play around with our pricing. Have a look at all the different options that you have. Request or consider requesting a callback from me personally. If you have a friend that runs a business or is a marketer, do send them our way. It will help us keep the lights on and producing more juicy content. Listeners to this show receive a special discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. If you want to learn yourself as to how to create content, maybe you want to make a podcast or your very own video, just download our free series on how to create a podcast and video at the very bottom of neural.com slash media.